Well, um, uh, one of the things, one of the best things I think about being invited back to preach at Ridley Chapel is uh, it's a sign that I finally left. <laughs> I feel it's kind of affirmation that I've finally gone and so uh, I can be invited back. I spent about nine years studying here, I think, which I know is not the record. There's plenty of people who've been here for longer. Um, <laughs> but nine years was a good length of time for me. If you can believe it, before the nine years that I studied at Ridley, I studied for another six or something at other institutions. And uh, one of the main things I studied was philosophy. And in philosophy, uh, we did a lot of ethics and moral philosophy. And uh, much of the time in those subjects, yes, it was just as you imagine it, sitting around, thinking about things. It was great. Talking about scenarios that we uh, know as moral dilemmas. And uh, these kind of scenarios are designed to test the limits of our moral frameworks or our uh, moral thinking. A moral dilemma is a scenario in which you have two competing moral demands, but you're unable to fulfil them, both or all. There are moral reasons to do each of uh, either thing, to choose either path, but to do both is impossible. And uh, the most famous moral dilemma, you might have heard of it, is known as the trolley problem. Who's heard of the trolley problem? A few people. A trolley is not a shopping trolley, um, but a kind of tram car or something, you know, on tracks, like on, on train tracks. And it goes like this. A trolley is running out of control down a track. In its path are five people who have been tied to the track by a mad philosopher. They are unable to get free and you do not have time to free them. Fortunately, right where you are standing is a lever. And uh, if you pull the lever, you will switch the track and the trolley uh, will turn down another track away from the five people in the path. Unfortunately, tied to the alternative track down which the trolley will now go is one person who is also unable to get free and you do not have time to free them. Should you pull the lever? or do nothing? This is the question. Do nothing and allow the trolley to kill the five or pull the lever and send the trolley to kill the one? So these scenarios are designed to kind of test the way you think about your ethics or your moral frameworks. They raise questions like, is action the same as inaction? Are consequences of our actions uh, more important than our actions themselves? Or is there a hierarchy of moral demands? Do some take precedence over others? And then maybe you can throw this into the mix. What if the one person tied on the alternative track is a child? What if the child is your child? Or what if the child is the child who will one day grow up to cure cancer? What then? What difference does relationship make? What difference does knowledge make, if you can have it? And obviously you can see that uh, depending on your moral framework, a different course of action might be required. Importantly though, in a true moral dilemma, we feel doomed to moral failure. Whatever we do, it's not easy uh, to feel good about either outcome. A version of this sort of problem that you might have heard, I hear Christians talk about this one a little bit, is uh, 
they, we call it the Jews in the basement dilemma. Have you heard this? Imagine you're in Nazi Germany and you're hiding Jews in your basement. The German soldiers come to your door and ask you whether you have any Jews in your house. What do you say? Our competing moral demands, of course, are to protect life and to tell the truth. And what should you do? Uh, the problem is then usually summed up with a kind of what I'm going to say is an entirely reductionistic question like, is it ever okay to lie? We'll see more about that later. But <clears throat> our text in Genesis 38 today describes a complex moral scenario, perhaps even a moral dilemma. The story, I think, certainly tests some of our moral assumptions our moral intuitions perhaps and its outcome I think might help shed some light on that Jews in the basement dilemma just described. So two things I want to do this morning as we uh, hear about the story. One, I hope that we can hear the story afresh in a way that might challenge some of our assumptions and two, uh, perhaps just deepen and maybe muddy a little bit for some of you, some of our thoughts about righteousness in this story. Now the two contrasted characters in this story are Judah and Tamar. And Judah, of course, is uh, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, the father of the tribe of Judah, uh, the ancestor of King David and of Jesus. Also, of course, just one chapter before, if you have a look at Genesis chapter 37, only a few verses earlier, Judah is the one who comes up with the excellent plan to sell his brother Joseph into slavery to the Ishmaelites. Cover his robe with the blood of a goat and present it to their father to convince him that uh, Joseph has died. This is Judah. Tamar is the wife of Judah's oldest son. Now, everything in this story revolves around uh, something known as the law of the Libya, which, you know, to us is a kind of very foreign law, something that doesn't quite make sense, probably something that would be rather unwelcome. So as of you who are um, married, considering what might happen if your husband dies. My husband's got three brothers and I'm not sure I want to marry any of them. Um, <laughs> we find this codified in Deuteronomy chapter 25, but of course when this story happens it's not written down yet like that, but it is in place in the culture. The law of the Livia was this. When a married man died without a male heir, it was the responsibility, the duty of one of his relations and uh, usually his brother to impregnate the widow so that the deceased man would have an heir. Uh, the son would be considered the son of the man who had died, not the son of the man who had fathered him and would inherit the property that was due to the deceased man. So the point was that the man who had died would have an heir, that he would have someone to inherit his property. A side benefit, although it's not really the intention, was also that the widow would have someone to care for her, which is good. And the whole of the rest of this story is about this obligation. Judah's sin is precisely his failure to fulfill this obligation towards Tamar. 
And Tamar's righteousness is seen in precisely what she does to fulfil this obligation. So it's a law that sounds very strange and unwelcome to us, uh, but it's what this whole story revolves around. So the oldest son dies, the second son has to marry Tamar. Uh, Andrew read the story so well that I think you probably got, you know, what was going on there. Onan doesn't want to provide a child for Tamar. He knows the child's not going to be his and his inheritance is diluted. So uh, he's quite happy to marry Tamar. He's quite happy to have sex with Tamar. He's quite happy to uh, use her for what he can get out of it. But he is unwilling, he's willfully disobedient to the obligations that he has in that relationship. And... Uh, God is not pleased and he dies. This is a scary time to be sinful. Uh, <laughs> Judah has uh, just one son left now. Two have died. And Judah is afraid to give his third son to Tamar. After the death of his two sons, he feels nervous. He feels uh, suspicious. And I think what you see is that instead of recognising the evil of his own two sons that we have heard about, we know the sons are evil, instead of recognising the evil of his sons, Judah assumes that Tamar is the problem. He says, if I give my third son, maybe my third son will die too. Perhaps she's cursed. You know, perhaps she's some kind of witch or a husband killer, this evil woman. And so on the pretense of waiting until uh, he's old enough, he sends Tamar away back to her father's house and we know that Judah has no intention of following through. So what should Tamar do? Time passes, the son comes of age, Judah's wife dies, Judah travels uh, to another town for a sheep shearing. I think that's a bit of a, a party for men in those days, a sheep shearing in the uh, other town. So somehow Tamar hears about this. And here in verse 13, you'll notice that the perspective in the story changes. So far, it's Judah who acts, and it's kind of brief, it's brisk. He, asks, he acts, Tamar kind of just, <coughs> just happens to her. But here the perspective changes. Time slows down a bit, we zoom in, and we see that Tamar becomes the protagonist in the story. She changes out of her widow's clothes. She covers herself with a veil and she sits at the gates of a city to wait for Judah to pass by. What does she intend to do, do you think? Most people assume that she intends to act as a prostitute, to seduce Judah and to trick him into uh, giving her an heir. Perhaps she does, but in fact we have no mention of prostitution at all in the text until Judah himself assumes that she is one and propositions her. <clears throat> Perhaps she wanted to disguise herself to see what was happening before she acted. Uh, one writer suggests that she might have even gone to the city gates to plead with the elders at the city gates as Deuteronomy 25 gives her provision to do so in this case. We don't know, but in any case, she sits by the entrance to Enaim 
and Judah passes by. He sees her, he doesn't recognise her, he assumes she is a prostitute and he propositions her, quite bluntly. And the name of this city, I don't pronounce it right, what is it, Andrew? Enaim. Thank you. Can mean eyes. So the entrance to this city, the place where Tamar sits, in the Hebrew text, can quite literally be translated the opening of the eyes. Here, at the opening of the eyes, Tamar sits covered by a veil with only her eyes revealed. She sees at last that Judah has no intention of honouring his obligations. Here, at the opening of the eyes, a man who has chosen not to see the needs of his daughter-in-law once again is blind to Tamar. Instead he sees, or he thinks he sees a prostitute, he sees her, he knows her, in the biblical sense, he knows her, and yet he does not see her at all. Here, at the opening of the eyes, Tamar is veiled, Judah is blind, and here begin the events that will lead to his real eye-opening. Perhaps you saw the comedy in the scene, uh, Judah's efforts to send the goat to repay the prostitute. Here's a man who won't fulfill his obligations to his actual daughter-in-law, sends his friend traipsing around the town, trailing a goat to pay a debt to a prostitute. In verse 23, he's at pains to make clear that he's tried to do the right thing. And then in the next scene, the comedy turns to tragedy as Judah hears of Tamar's pregnancy. The man who only moments ago has tried to pay his prostitute with a goat believes his daughter-in-law to have been in prostitution and he roars with rage. Bring her out and burn her to death. He never really cared much for her honour before but now it seems to matter a lot. And so the stage is set for the big reveal in this story. And here Tamar's uh, creative, risky and brilliant pursuit of justice is made known. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. See if you recognise whose seal and cord and staff these are. And here at this moment, this pivotal moment of Tamar's vindication and Judah's confession, uh, the writer uses the very same words that we've seen already just one chapter before in chapter 37 words that Judah and his brothers had used when they bought Joseph's cloak that they had covered in blood and presented it to their father. Do you recognise this, they had said. 
So Tamar's deception here and her use of these belongings as she brings them to Judah reminds us of Judah's own actions only half a chapter before. And the, yet the contrast couldn't be greater. As Judah is forced to remember his own actions, at last he sees the difference between himself and Tamar and his eyes are finally opened. She is more righteous than I, he says. Judah has acted wrongly in refusing to give Sheila as her husband, so Tamar has acted rightly in pursuing justice for herself, for her dead husband and for the family line. She is the only one of all the characters in the story who was willing to raise up offspring for her husband. Offspring whom we know eventually lead all the way to Jesus. <coughs> this story, I think, does test some of our moral intuitions, doesn't it? My guess is you still want to hold a little bit of uncertainty about what Tamar has done. You're still not quite sure about her. So here it is kind of plain. The man with all the power, relational, social, financial, legal power, he walks away from his obligations to the vulnerable in his own family. The woman with no power, relational, social, financial, legal, nothing, vulnerable, powerless, used and abused, finds a way to do what is right. So if you're coming away at this point and you're still in your head kind of walking away with a question like this, is it ever okay to act as a prostitute to trick your father-in-law into getting you pregnant? <laughs> it's not a question I hope my daughter's asking me one day. <clears throat> if you're walking away with that question in your head, you're not getting it. Because you can't abstract that question from this story. Context, relationships, power, justice and injustice, all of those things matter here. The power relationship between Judah and Tamar, his failure to fulfill his obligations, his hypocrisy, it's only in this context that Tamar's actions make sense. You can, look at, you can look at this passage and you can say, look, I think what happens here is regrettable. It is. What she does is regrettable. But she should never have been put in that position in the first place. And she's vindicated. Well, you probably know, because uh, you're at Bible College, that uh, this story in Genesis 38 is the turning point in Judah's life. Before this, he's the man who sells out his brother, Joseph, and after this, he's the one uh, who will offer himself as a slave in place of Benjamin for his father's sake. We think he learns something here, perhaps. You might also know that this story is uh, often considered a microcosm of the Joseph story. Tamar is the Joseph figure, the wisdom figure, the trickery and deception themes are both there too. You might also know uh, that Tamar is one of the four Old Testament women who are inserted into Matthew's genealogy in the line leading to Jesus. 
along with the, the three sets of 14 generations of men, there's a couple of little additions and there's these four Old Testament women. Tamar, Ruth, Rahab and Bathsheba. Women who, uh, let's face it, we've tended to characterise in a certain way. There's lots of reasons to pay attention to Tamar. Uh, but there's one other reason that I want to talk about this morning. And that's the context of domestic and family violence and the context of sexual abuse in the church. There will be women in your congregations who are victims of family violence. <clears throat> there will be men in your congregations who are perpetrators of family violence. There will be ministers amongst our churches who are guilty of abuses of power. And we, in the church, we, the church, need to deal with the fact that we have been complicit in cover-ups and in victim blaming. We are beginning to wake up, I think, to the sins of the powerful over against the powerless. But we need to take a good, long, hard look at the how and the why that these things have been able to happen among us. We need to have a serious think about what we have to say into these situations and whether we have any credibility to say it. And I'm going to suggest that the way you hear this story, the story about Tamar and others like it, will have something to do with, not everything for sure, but will have something to do with your response to these scenarios. I'm going to suggest that the lens that you use to read this story and others like it will be the lens that you take to a scenario that might confront you in your church. So hearing afresh stories like this one about Tamar, who we have misunderstood, I think, are part of helping us to open our eyes. How is the way that we have read our Bibles? How is the way that we have cast characters like these? How are our assumptions about innocence and guilt and who holds each of those things? How are these assumptions that we have brought to texts like these connected to the way we've responded to these situations in our church? And can we see that those assumptions are not disconnected from issues of power, and powerlessness from our ideas about women and men and until we can do something to change our minds until we can learn to read these texts on their own terms not just assume that Tamar is sexually dubious when all of the sexual sin that happens in this story belongs to the men not just to continue to unthinkingly kind of omit Judah's sins when we think about who he is, then I think we will be blind to the sins amongst us. We need to hear the voices of the women 
of the powerless, of those on the margins. We need to hear them both in here in our Bibles and we need to hear them out there.